0: Thanks, Kara, for a very tricky passage with lots of funny names in there. Uh, Hey, everyone. My name is Ming, and welcome to Unichurch. I'm one of the pastors here at church. It's great to be here with you all. Uh, It's awesome to see you all here, and that we've got lots of stuff happening in the life of Unichurch. But the thing that keeps driving us forward is the Word of God. And so as we work our way through the book of Genesis in this series, why don't we pray and ask God to keep opening our eyes to that and seeing more about who He is. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you that as we start the semester and we uh, continue to explore uh, who you are and learn more about you and how you fit into our life, uh, we do pray that we might see that you are above all that and that you drive all things forward and that you are the God of kings and God over everything. And so we do pray that as we look into your word today, might we see that and be captivated by who you are and what you have to say to us. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wished that you could have a do-over? Where, you know, you look at your life, you know, what you studied or what you're doing for work or what you invested all your time and money in, and you're like, man, that was a waste of time. I wish I could do it all again. And you think, I need a fresh start. Well, you're not alone. Because in 1999, the creator of Simpsons, Matt Groening, thought the exact same thing. So he created Futurama. Put a picture up on the screen. See, after just 10 years, 10 years of creating episodes of The Simpsons, Matt Groening decided it was time for a fresh start. So he created Philip J. Fry, the main character of Futurama, to showcase that. Now, if I'm just old, I don't know, or you're too young to know what that is, he's the guy in this famous meme I looked on the internet. And Fry, he's an unsatisfied, poorly paid... <laughs> He's he's an unsatisfied, poorly paid pizza delivery boy who falls into a freezer on New Year's Eve. He's literally frozen for a 1,000 years and ends up in the year 3,000. And on the other side of that freezer, Fry does not miss a thing from his past. His boss was a jerk, his girlfriend dumped him, and his parents didn't care about him. And this was his new beginning. And I want to say... That's the exact feeling we're meant to have as we step into these chapters of Genesis 5 and 6. See, for the last few weeks, we've quickly moved from God's creation of the world, which was awesome. But then we saw the fall, man taking what was not theirs and sin entering the world. And just last week, we saw humanity's first murder. Things have quickly spiraled out of control, haven't they? But today, we get to see a new beginning. And it all starts with a genealogy. Now, I know, I know, genealogies are what many consider to be the most boring parts of the Bible. Aren't you glad you turned up to church this Sunday? You know, after I became a Christian, when I was around around 25, I'd just graduated uni, I decided it was time to, you know, actually read the Bible, because that's what Christians do, right? So I started off in Genesis, because, you know, you always read a book front to back. And then I hit Genesis 5 and thought, well, that was random. Then I kept going, and then in Genesis 11... I had another long genealogy. And I was like, man, what is going on here? What is this book? It started off good, but then it started going downhill. Then one of my mates from Church, he was like, you know, he was helping me grow as a Christian and, you know, love God. And he said, no, no, don't don't start in Genesis. That's confusing stuff. You know, start with the New Testament. You know, that's where Jesus is. So I was like, all right, that's a good idea. So I went to the first chapter. (laughs) I went to the first chapter of the first gospel in the New Testament, and I hit what? A long genealogy. And I was like, man, what is this book? It's like one giant sleeping pill. <laughs> and really, that, that's the challenge for us today, isn't it? So my prayer for this talk is that we might see how valuable these kind of chapters really are for our, for as we read the Bible. Uh, but first, let me tell you what genealogies are not. They're not there to tell us how old the earth is or how long mankind has been on earth. They're selective. They skip generations. And we know that because if we map different genealogies in the Bible onto each other, we see that a man can be the father of his great-great-great-grandson. Genealogies are not calculators. So if that's the case, what are genealogies for? Well, simply put, they're just making connections for us. They take us from one major arc of the Bible to the next major arc. But here's where the rubber hits the road with that. The bottom line is, genealogies help show us that the Bible is not a series of unrelated events or people. You can't just pick a random page of the Bible and think, oh, that's nice, and then tap out again. No, the Bible is a timeline throughout history, but not just any history, it's God's unfolding plan of salvation throughout history. And it's about God revealing himself more and more through specific family lines so we can bless the world through his one and only son, Jesus. So for example, today in Genesis 5, we actually know Adam had three sons, Cain and Abel, who we learned about last week, and this week, Seth, whose genealogy we're following along this week. But from this point on in the Bible, we actually only follow the line of Seth because it's his line that will lead to Jesus. See, the Bible is not a series of disconnected events. It's one epic, unfolding story, and these genealogies form the bridges. Now, as we jump further into our passage, I'm going to give you two keys, two keys to understanding any genealogy in the Bible. Two keys that'll help you work out what they're trying to tell us. All right, so the first key, and we've already touched on it, is that a genealogy always starts somewhere and ends somewhere. And those somewheres are very important. Now Genesis 5 has taken us from the creation, Adam, all the way to this guy, Noah. And that means Noah's gonna be important. So we should start, be, start getting excited about what Noah's gonna bring to the table. But hold your horses for that. We're gonna be spending a whole week on Noah next week. For the rest of our talk this week, I actually wanna unpack the second key to understanding genealogies. And the second key is that genealogies are highly patterned. So if you look back through chapter five, or think back to when Kara read that out for us, you'll notice that it's beautifully patterned, isn't it? Repetition, repetition, repetition. But it's not just the pattern we need to look at. It's also where the pattern breaks. Where the pattern breaks can sometimes be the most important thing about the genealogy. So that's what we'll be looking at today, the pattern of life, the pattern of death, and where that pattern breaks. Those are the points in your outline. All right, so the first thing, and I want to start with the good stuff, is the pattern of life. See, God is pro-life. He is the great giver of life, even in the midst of sin. And we've waded through that sin through the thick of it over the last few weeks, haven't we? In Genesis 3, we saw the sin of Adam and Eve who couldn't trust God. They doubted His goodness and turned their backs on Him. And then in Genesis 4, we saw the sin of Cain, and the story just seems to be getting worse. But here's the thing. God's judgment, His kindness, God's grace and kindness is never far away from His judgment. And God allows, through that sin, another generation to come. God is pro-life. See, the Bible doesn't end at the fall, where we're stuck in this broken and messy world. We may not live forever, but we do get to live. Every breath we take, every birth in this world is an act of grace by God. So have a look with me at Genesis chapter 4 verse 25. It's up on the screen. Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, "God has given me another offspring in place of Abel, since Cain killed him." Who does Eve give credit for for the birth of Seth? God. And here at our church family, we've actually seen the literal birth of a whole new generation. We've had over 30 babies born from, you know, graduated uni churches and across all our campuses, and our preschool room at the morning church service was literally overflowing. We had to get a new building just for that problem. (laughs) Honestly, praise God for the life that He continues to give, not just in Genesis 5, but throughout all of human history, and even today in 2023. But that's not all we see in this pattern of life in our genealogy. We also see that humans are named and remembered. We matter to God. You know, as I was preparing for this talk, I I tried to look up my family tree and I chatted with my sister and wouldn't even know the names of our great-grandparents, let alone the millions of uncles and aunties us Asians have. And it got me thinking, we so easily forget two or three generations before us. But to God, every, Christian is na- every Christian's name is written in his book of life. They are remembered eternally. We truly matter to God. And humans are given that special privilege of being made in the image of God like we saw in Genesis chapter 1. But we're actually reminded of, again, reminded of it again here in Genesis 5. So have a look with me at verse 1. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Do you see that? Mankind is made in God's likeness. In other words, in his image. And to help jog our memories for those of us who missed out, that means we have the unique privilege of representing and reflecting God in this world through the way that we relate to creation, the world around us, through the way that we relate to one another, but most importantly, through the way we relate to God himself. Now, why do you think that last one is important? Relating to God. You know, it's the one that most people ignore, isn't it? Well, I want you to think of it like this. Think of a sun or a light source or, and, and, and its mirror. I slapped together a picture on Microsoft Paint. It's up on the screen to inspire you. Now, God... He is like the sun or a light source. He is the source of light, and He makes the world so His glory can be shown. And that glory is good. It's the embodiment of His goodness, His warmth, His kindness, His generosity. But the process doesn't end there. Mankind was made to mirror that glory. And we were to see that glory and reflect that glory. We're to reflect God's love, His faithfulness, everything to those around us. And so there's this beautiful relationship of rebounding glory and love from God to us and from us to one another and back to God. But let's never forget, God is the source of it all. And I want to say, when we choose to reject God, we're not only rejecting His good- goodness, we're actually rejecting the source of life itself. And that can only lead to one thing, can't it? Death. Now, we'll get to that soon. Because just on this idea of life, one of the things that strikes us from our passage is the sheer length of life. The oldest person living today is this lady called Maria Branyas. I put a picture over on the screen. Now this says 115, but last week she apparently turned 117. The oldest person, according to our modern living records, is a lady called Jean Calmont, who lived to be 122. But here in our passage... Adam supposedly father, Seth, at 130, and then he kicks on for another 800 years. Whoa, what is going on here? Well, there's lots of theories that are floating around. You know, they range from these ages being symbolic, where people have examined all the numbers and, and which ones are repeated and left out and, and tried to explain these patterns, to the literal, where people explain that these, their years would have been the exact same length as our years. I'll just say, I'm really on the fence with this. The skeptic inside of me, and I still currently kind of there, leans towards the symbolic. But this is the God of life we're talking about. If he wanted people to live thousands of years, he could easily give that. So which is it, literal or symbolic? Well, either way, I want to say the point is still the same. The long life we see here is just trying to show us the grace of God not only in bringing a new generation, new life in Seth's family line, but in the longevity of life. And so I want to say life, however many years, is a gift from God. You know, my dad, he only lived until 65. Some of us would say that's pretty young. Angela's grandma, she's on her last legs at 92. Next week, on Sunday next week, my daughter Penny, she turns one. However old you are, Every year we're given to live is a gift from God. It's the big reasons why birthdays are absolutely worth celebrating, to praise God for the life he gives. And I want to say praise God for the great diversity of ages we see here in our church family. That being said, though, alongside the pattern of life we see in these chapters, there's another another pattern isn't there, and it's the pattern of death. See, we're actually a double story, We're made in the image of God, but we're also made in the image of our first father, Adam. So have a look with me at Genesis 5, verse 3. It's up on the screen. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. It's not just the image of God that's passed on from generation to generation. It's the likeness of man. You know, someone once said, we're a glorious ruin. Part glory, part ruin. We're made to be mirrors, but we're now fogged up, cracked and shattered. But what's more, we've actually turned our backs, turned away from the light source. We've turned our backs from God. And because we all share in the likeness of the first man, Adam, we're actually born with this problem. The fancy word for this is original sin. But that basically just means we're like those shopping trolleys. We try to avoid it at countdown, you know? They have a bung wheel. We can't roll straight. And it's frustrating. We have a bias. We're weighted on one side to now sin. Glorious ruin made in the image of God, the privilege and dignity that comes with it, but also made in the likeness of Adam. Now our passage goes to great lengths to illustrate this glorious ruin really powerfully. And it's trying to show us that no matter how long we have to live, it now comes to an end. So have a look with me at a few verses I've chosen from Genesis 5. I've put them up on the screen. So Kenan's life lasted 910 years, and then he died. So Mahalal's life lasted 895 years, and then he died. So Jared's life lasted 962 years, and then he died. So Methuselah's life lasted 969 years, and then he died. Do you see the pattern? It's not just life. It's death. God has numbered our days. And death is God's way of saying, I'm not going to put up with your rebellion forever. And really, with the increase of sin comes the increase of judgment. So have a look with me at Genesis 6, verse 3. It's up on the screen. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they're corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. So here, they're reaching almost 1,000, right? But then later on, ages begin to shrink rapidly. And after just 10 generations, we're lucky if we even hit 100. And the reason God reduces these lifespans is told to us in verse 1. It's up on the screen. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. Now, I'll first just say this is a really tricky passage. There are lots of different views on this. You know, some say that you know, this is talking about some kind of demons or, or nasty angels. You know, others say that this is Seth's line intermarrying with the line of Cain, the godly with the ungodly. Others say that mankind's e- deeds are evil, just like we saw in Genesis 3, because they saw and they took what was not theirs. Perhaps taking women at will, maybe engaging in some sort of sexual violence. Look, whatever it is, though, what is clear is that sin is increasing, and it's crossing new boundaries and new barriers. Things are essentially getting worse, not better. And I want to say here today, thousands and thousands of years later, however long it's been, these new boundaries being crossed haven't stopped You know, in the last century alone, 160 million people were killed, not because of a flood or some natural disaster, but because for one reason or another, one man decided to kill another in an act of war. Do you know that every year, over 10,000 Kiwis never make it out of the womb because our society has endorsed abortion, and in doing so, cheapened life? But it doesn't stop there. Did you know in New Zealand, our country, New Zealand, it's rated the worst developed country in the world when it comes to domestic violence? You know, apparently on average, police attend a family violence incident every four minutes. The diagnosis is far worse than we like to imagine, isn't it? And just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have this pattern of seeing and taking for ourselves and it's never said more clearly than in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It's up on the screen. The Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. This is not saying it's as bad as we could be. No, we could actually be worse. See, every facet of our being has been twisted. Not just our actions. God is interested in our hearts. Motives matter to God. Desires matter to God. Thoughts matter matter to God. And every single one of us has been stained. Up on the screen, I put four, six portraits of six real men in history, from history. And one of these men was the architect that led to the murder of just under two million people. Who do you think it was? If you guessed this guy, the next guy on the screen, you're a sharp one. You know your history. This is Heinrich Himmler, And one of the family victims of the Holocaust actually met this guy face-to-face in court. And they said that what shocked them, they said in tears after the trial, what shocked them wasn't that this man was capable of such atrocities, but the man capable of such atrocities looked like any ordinary person. See, our sinfulness is so important for us to grasp that God came in the person 2,000 years ago in in Jesus Christ, and He declared very clearly personally, from his own lips, no one is good but God alone. And yet, this is our reality. When God comes to us in person personally, what do we do? The first generation executed him, and the generations that follow ignored him. And what's worse, we now live in a society where we normalize death and a godless society. We try to normalize it. This is why God... Is right to judge this is why we have this pattern of death and this is why God says he will deal decisively with judgment in verse 6 we'll look at that next week but for now I just want us to notice God's grief here a lot of people they read the Old Testament and they just think God you know he's just some angry old man but it actually takes a really long time in the Bible before God actually says he's angry And that's because the first thing it actually wants us to know is that God's actually in pain when He looks at us. So have a look with me at Genesis 6, verse 6. It's up on the screen. The Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and He was deeply grieved. Do you feel the pain that we've caused God? Are you in any way aware what you and I have done to Him? You know, studies have apparently shown that anger is always a secondary emotion. The primary emotion is always some kind of hurt. And when this verse tells us God regretted, it's not like God thought, oh gee, you know, if only I knew how that would turn out, then I wouldn't have made them. It's not regret in that way. It's simply trying to communicate us to the depths of the wounds in God's heart in a way that we can relate and understand Him. You know, I recently watched a documentary, the same documentary of the Heinrich Himmler guy, of a psychologist who who was examining those who helped architect the Holocaust, right? Uh, The murder of millions of people. This guy was examining those architects. And at the end of the film, the psychologist says, I figured out the root of evil. At the heart of evil is the inability to empathize, the refusal to put yourself in the shoes of another. Now, there's a lot of wisdom in that, isn't there? But I think that it doesn't quite go far enough. You know, it might explain why we hurt one another, but it doesn't actually get to the heart of it. Because the ultimate core of our evil is the inability to enter the pain and suffering of our Creator. That's the thought that never crosses the mind of most people. That our lives have deeply grieved God. Now, I want you to think on me with this, because this is important. The word for grief here. In Genesis, actually used four other times in other instances in the Bible. So so in Isaiah chapter 54, this grief is described as the grief a wife feels when her husband leaves her. In Genesis 34, we're told this grief is the grief the sons of Jacob felt when they discovered their sister had just been raped. In 1 Samuel 20, This grief is how Jonathan felt when he found out his dad, King Saul, was trying to kill his best mate. And finally, in 2 Samuel 19, this grief is the grief David felt when he found out his son Absalom had been killed. Are you starting to get the picture? This is how God feels when we sin. Every day, every person is impacting God in this way. And, friends, the solution is not some vague hope that maybe we'll get better. We've had thousands of years to disprove that theory. Now, the problem has always been a problem with the human heart. But thankfully, God does not leave us this way. See, while this passage wants us to feel the weight of the cycle of life, sin, and then death, it also gives us a surprising hope in where its pattern breaks. So, where does its pattern break? Well, we almost skipped over it, but it's in verse 22 of chapter five. It's up on the screen. Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. Now what is going on with Enoch, right? Well, Enoch, he points to the fact that in a world corrupted by sin and death, it's possible to have a relationship with God. It's possible to walk with God and trust Him. And while everyone else was, you know, almost cracking a thousand years, Enoch lived a relatively short life. And it's because he knew that walking with God, walking, walking on this earth mattered far less than walking with God now and into the life to come. And that's why God took him, never to face death. We're told all about that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, He's commended for his faith. You can check it out later. But I don't want to go there today because we're told elsewhere Enoch is far more than just an example. So come with me to Jude chapter 14. I put it up on the screen. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And all of the defiant words And all of the defiant words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. See, Enoch, he had a message to give. He saw the rebellion against God. He saw the sin and death in the world around him. And he knew this wasn't how things ought to be. And so he spoke boldly about it in his day. But while his words only spoke of death and judgment, once again, God's grace is never far away from his judgment. And Enoch's very own descendant, several thousands of years, generations later, speaks a better word, a better message, one of life, one of a surprising hope to a people who didn't deserve it. So have a look with me at just a couple of verses later in Jude, it's on the screen. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. See, this side of history, the history we're on, we see God's surprising hope even more clearly than Enoch did. We know God looks at us. He looks at mankind displeased, and yet he gives us the one who does please. And in Mark chapter 1, he says, this is my son Jesus, with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus, he goes to the cross, dies the death we deserve, and rises to eternal life, breaking this pattern of death forever. Here's the thing, though. God is not like us at all. He sees, and instead of taking, He gives generously. And in Jesus, we see just how massive God's love is. And in Jesus, we see that He sees our greatest need, and He gives life that never ends. You know, I started this talk with, Fry, the main character on Futurama, right? And I did that because as he thought that the future was going to be his new beginning, about halfway through the TV series, Fry realizes that life in the future is not all that different. He sees all the same patterns around him. He goes from being a pizza delivery boy to being a space delivery boy. The people around him are still greedy power-hungry and selfish, but only worse, because the robot slaves have exasperated our sin. But more importantly, he finally realizes that he's part of the problem. And our passage is telling us, it really is trying to tell us, this pattern of sin and death exists in our world, but what it really wants us to know is that we're part of that problem. But God offers us all, not just any new beginning, not some self-help course, not religion, or governments, or philosophies. No, he offers us new hearts. Hearts that are struck and captivated by the incredible love God has shown us in Jesus. And I want to say, if you're here and not yet a Christian, stop going around in circles, stuck in this endless cycle of life and then death. God is offering eternity today. Trust him, be amazed by him, and start walking with him now. But if you're here, and I'm guessing as most of us, and you're here and you are a Christian, I wanna say you have the freedom to say no to this pattern of sin. And instead, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, we can be mirrors that reflect God's glory once more. Not perfectly in this life, but we have that choice. And the question is, whatever sins you are dealing with, it can be anything. A thankless heart, a relationship you've given up on, porn, pride, whatever it is, do you see how much it grieves God, the impact it has on Him? And yet instead of judgment, He's chosen to break that pattern and offer forgiveness. So let me ask, will you snap out of it? And instead of nursing that sin, will you put it to death? Will you walk with God now and into the life to come?